It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. For five years, New York Times reporter Ian Urbina hopped aboard fishing vessels and heard the stories of people working in a hidden world. The high seas are open waters hundreds of miles from shore. They're so remote, no laws govern them. Urbina says these perilous waters play host to criminality and exploitation. The lack of governance and the lack of protections about the people who work above the waterline and the creatures below, I think is a huge problem. Today, he tells the gripping and tragic story of the outlaw ocean. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen High Seas Initiative and Conservation International. The high seas are the most remote and unexplored places in the world. This open water covers 45% of the planet and two-thirds of the ocean itself. It's a place of beauty, but Ian Urbina says severe inhumanities happen there, like human trafficking, sea slavery, abuse of stowaways, and gun running. Many of the 50 million people who work in the open waters have witnessed a murder. The demand for commodities like fish and oil drive business on the high seas. With little policing in this region, can companies step in to help curb the human rights and labor abuses? As consumers, what can we do? CEO of Conservation International M. Sanjan speaks with Ian Urbina about his new book, The Outlaw Ocean, Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Here's Sanjan. Thank you, everyone, for uh, being out here for lunch with us. And um, Ian, I'm going to start by telling you why we provided a free lunch. <laughs> We're a nonprofit, so um, we provided this free lunch because in 2015 you wrote an article in the New York Times. Um, it won a bunch of awards. It was, an, it was an article that we read, and even for someone who spent their entire lives in conservation, um, I was born in Sri Lanka. I literally grew up on the sea. It was a revelation to me. I always thought I was doing the right thing when I would go out there and buy seafood that was, say, certified, MSC certification, the highest levels of certification you can find. And I would ask for those things when I would buy it. I would use the little checklist that different aquariums would give me. What I didn't realize was even though those certifications, very useful as they are, are about ecological sustainability, they tell you nothing about the conditions in which the people who caught them uh, uh, had to experience life. It would be like the garment industry saying that it's sustainable cotton still using slave labor. How big is the problem? And um, uh, um, we'll start with how big is the problem and did that surprise you as well? First of all, thank you um, to CI, to Sanjin, to Aspen for having this incredible event. Um, so to take one step back from the question is to say, what is the problem? Um, first, that I would be alluding to, to me, the problem is um, an out of sight, out of mind reality that results in a utter lack of governance in a sprawling space that for too long has been thought of as simply a space, sometimes a marine space, but rarely a workplace. Um, so 
the problem as I see it on a meta level is a rethinking of that um, location and uh, remembering of, as you allude to, the 50 plus million people that work out there. Um, now, uh, the lack of governance and the lack of protections about um, the people who work above the waterline and the creatures below, um, I think is a huge problem uh, on the most general level. Um, the specific subgroup of the problem being human rights and labor abuses and how they feed from and result in environmental crimes, um, I think is, um, I don't know the right word to quantify it, but I think it, it is a huge problem in part because it's so rarely discussed and it's unlike many of the, you made this really smart reference to garment. You know, if you look historically at other key moments and key industries, uh, blood diamonds, sweatshop garment, um, dolphin free tuna, um, you can see there were key moments where there was a reckoning by that industry with the problem of you know, um, child labor or environmental crime. Um, and I think that moment is now arriving to the seafood industry and the maritime space generally. So um, step one is to have a sustained covering and exposure of, and step two is, I think, um, to start thinking about um, CI, Aspen are already involved in it, solutions for. Do you think it's possible, and what would it look like to develop social responsibility standards for uh, seafood at large? Because you can't go into a restaurant today and look down and says, you know, this mackerel not brought to you by slave labor. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it's possible for sure. Um, so again, to do what I always do, which is take a step. Well, and, and, and who's against it? Where I was headed is answering that. I think um, there's a, not to get too esoteric, but I do think there's a long uh, cultural and intellectual history behind thinking of the sea and maritime as a, a, another world where things are different and there's an exceptionalism to it. And that exceptionalism fostered through literature and everything else um, is why if you walk up to a airline pilot and say, you of course have a crew, crew manifest, right? And they say, of course. And you've registered where you're going and they say, of course. But if you walk, and that's pre 9-11, that's cultural. If you walk up to a ship captain and say, you have a crew manifest and you've called ahead and you have everything mapped out and someone's gonna know where you are at all times, they'd say, who are you? Um, and I think that's a cultural distinction that is really problematic in the first place. Who's against it? So that leads me to, um, the culture of the industry is against it. And those who oppose government or trans government rules, oversight, are ones, are those who benefit from it. Large retailers, large fishing companies uh, who say, look, we've never done it that way and we're not gonna start now. And they have lots of regular, regularized excuses as to why they shouldn't have to always have a transponder that says where they are or have a uniform license plate that everyone uses around the world that makes that ship stuck in time and you can't change its identity month to month. So, so just let me understand this correctly. 
Um, so when you say large you know, retailers, these are things that we could go into a supermarket here and buy, for example, right? Cans of fish, for example, cans of tuna mm. or other kinds of fish. But isn't that a huge risk for these companies if the word gets out that literally slave labor was used in putting this together? Yeah, so it's a, it's a huge risk from a brand perspective. Yeah. Um, but there are two things that happen there. One is many of the players have no brand, right? So if I say to you Walmart, it's a name you know. If I say to you CP, it's probably not a name you know. But CP is actually hugely powerful in the aggregate buying of fish, and they sell to Walmart. So if I put a piece on the front page of the New York Times that says CP knowingly is involved in, and this is hypothetical, I'm not hitting CP, but knowingly is involved, I should, but um, <laughs> involved with um, uh, slave labor and IUU and environmental crimes uh, and is, is looking the other way, no one will care because no one's heard of CP and you can't really act on that. But if I look at Walmart and say Walmart is not actually telling its buying agents to um, force its sellers to clean up their supply chain and abide by a set of rules. Um, and again, I'm not hitting Walmart. It's just a name that everyone knows, and it's a huge player. Um, they have a real, or Nestle, who we hit in the original article, they have a real risk in from a brand perspective. But if there was a company that wanted to try to do the right thing, and let's pick Walmart because everyone knows it, is it actually possible for them to trace the fish that they have in their stores throughout the world back to one of these tiny boats? Because mm. what you see is these almost ramshackle boats, almost sort of mm. a little living village, kind of like with a real ecosystem. In your book, you talk about sort of the rats and the vermin and the conditions on these boats. They're sunk for almost no cost, and no one, the owners don't actually care because they've already taken the profit and run away with them. Can you trace it all the way back to that? So you make a great example of garment. So I worked on the Tazreen and um, disasters where many workers in Bangladesh were killed in mm. garment factories. Um, and went to Dhaka and went undercover and snuck in these factories looking at a similar decentralized supply chain that's very difficult to manage. The dye is made here, the, the stuff is sewn there, it's you know shipped over here and bundled with other types of clothes and sold to these middlemen who then sell it to, you know, Benetton. Um, uh, and that's an on-land supply chain, but that's globalized and decentralized and often shifting based on a spot market. Dye is cheaper this week over there. Let's you know, so it is not easy. Now, if you take so cleaning up a supply chain in the globalized moment is not an easy thing. It's not a cheap thing. It's not a fast thing. Now, take it offshore to sh spaceships that are on the planet moving through a space that no one governs, that have a ship flagged to one country, captained by a guy from another country, manned by a crew from a third country in international waters and dropping off their cargo in a fourth country, and they're moving. Okay, and the countries where the stuff's getting dropped off has no inclination to mess with the cargo because yeah. they're just the through. So it's, it's not easy, I, I get it, but it is utterly feasible. Um, and there are already movements afoot. Port state control measure is an example um, that are attempting to impose these rules. And a player like Walmart could accomplish huge improvements in supply chain monitoring. And to be fair, I think we're, we're working with them on exactly yeah. this problem around a couple of right. the big fisheries that they're involved in. 
um, with some progress. So quick, two quick questions. I really want to open up to the audience because, of course, we've got this amazing audience here. Um, first question is, I was surprised at something that happened to me about a year ago when I was walking in, at a, in a harbor in Hawaii with one of our, with the head of our fisheries program. And he said there was a chain link fence and there's a whole bunch of little fishing boats out there, not U.S. fishing boats from elsewhere. And he said, look at that boat, look at that boat, look at that boat. Those all have slave labor on it. Mm. And I said, that's unbelievable. Why can't we go out and arrest mm. them? We can. We can. <laughs> I mean, in we, many we, cases, can, you can. Can we really? But, so, so those boats don't just, they're not just docking in places like um, Myanmar. They're also docking in Hawaii. Yeah. No, in fairness, it's not so easy. Um, uh, it's difficult um, to check on labor conditions on these vessels, much more so than checking on the, the documentation that pertains to the fish, partially because of the progress that's been made, helped by organizations sure. like yours, um, in the environmental front um, to impose tighter regulations on um, environmental concerns and the lack of progress that has occurred on the labor front generally on in all industries but quite especially in this industry and quite especially more um, with fishing boats because there's this strange exceptionalism about so many of the labor conventions that exist apply to seafarers merchant marines marsh container ships yes. um, and fishing is exempt uh, and has long since been exempt from any of those things. So for all of these reasons, um, it is difficult to, to get access to the boat and to do anything about the conditions. And the second thing is something you mentioned. You said, you know, why bother reporting it if, if no one can actually do anything about it? Sort of idea that came out on, on your film. But um, these boats are operating on the high seas, but many of them are also operating within the easy Zs of small, so the exclusive economic zone of small island nations. So you take a nation like Kiribati, tiny speck of an ocean uh, country, but it's not one, it's a, it's a constellation of hundreds of islands. So when you put Kiribati's waters, exclus exclusive waters together, it's big. It's like the biggest ocean nation around. It's, you know, the length of the United States. It's not just a high sea strict problem, right? It, it absolutely affects countries and their ability to manage this, their resources. Yeah, you're exactly right on that. Um, so two weeks ago, I got back from a patrol off the coast of the Gambia. And um, this was um, uh, a patrol in which there were Gambian Navy and fisheries officers on board a vessel that was an outside organization. And we boarded and inspected and ultimately they boarded, I was there, um, uh, and inspected and ultimately arrested uh, three vessels. These were Chinese flagged vessels with co-ownership with Gambian in individuals. The ships got back, were taken back to port, um, mostly foreign crew, Senegalese crew, um, Chinese captains, uh, and then the interesting part happened, which is somewhat what you alluded to. Gambia is a poor country, smallest African nation um, on the continent, and um, is in desperate need of revenue. And who is investing in bridges and roads but the Chinese? Um, and so while the fisheries officers and the head of the fisheries ministry was really excited about a legit arrest, um, all of a sudden everything ground to a halt because someone from upstairs, shall we say, in the government said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Because they got a call. And in fairness to 
Gambia and whomever upstairs made the call, there's a balancing act always going on. And it's a high stakes one in these poor countries where there's a lot at issue and it's complicated. Um, at the same time, it's a legitimate arrest over a serious crime. Some of them were labor abuses, some of them were fishing abuses. Um, and this is how things get mired in the real world in these very places you're alluding to, often in national waters. Okay, my last question, I'll turn it over to the audience, is um, um, so you spent 40 months on boats, 12,000 nautical miles, sailing up and down. Some of the video is very confrontational. The book reads like a, a, a series of stories, and they're all page turners. Um, was it dangerous, and what's the most sort of surprising thing you felt happened to you during those 40 months of voyaging? Um, so, this you is... You don't look like a pirate. <laughs> uh, dangerous. So, um, I always am a little uncomfortable with the danger question. It's a legitimate question, but the truth of the matter is um, the people that I was interviewing on these vessels and also the people I brought with me, my translator, my you know fixer, um, my photographer, were often in-country folk, and those folk stayed when I left and those folks don't carry American passports. And especially the folks I'm interviewing, um, they don't leave the ship when I leave. And you talk about real danger, both the staff that I bring with me and the folks I'm talking to, those folks face real danger, just in survival, but also in being associated with me in any way. So it always feels a little gross for me to touch the danger question. That said, yes, there were, there were um, situations that I didn't want to tell my family about when I got back or when they were happening. Um, they usually involved um, people that were not happy with the questions I was asking. Um, I think among those, the, the one that scared me the most was um, Somalia in reporting for the book. We got um, sort of invited in, intending to do one story to Somalia and then to Puntland, which is, as you know, the horn of Somalia and Africa near off, you know, facing Yemen. Um, to this breakaway state, really lawless state. And um, we thought we had everything set up when we rolled in. And then things went south very quickly. We lost favor with the government. We had half of our security detail pulled from us and we were told to get out. But there's no way out. You can't travel by road, ISIS and Shabab. And uh, planes weren't coming for four or five days. And so we were in a really bad situation, hiding out on the roof of a compound for a couple of days trying to figure out what we were going to do uh, to get out. Um, obviously, we got out, fine. Um, but um, I was genuinely scared um, uh, uh, in that um, incident. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is launching its new season with a conversation about vaping. After a dozen deaths and hundreds of cases of lung injury, some vaping companies are shutting down advertising. Matthew Myers is president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. He says the vaping product, Juul, lured kids with its marketing. Since Juul was introduced in 2015, we have seen an extraordinary growth in youth use of nicotine-based products. Since the advent of e-cigarettes, anti-tobacco experts have wondered whether they might help people stop smoking. But are e-cigarettes really any safer than traditional cigarettes? Learn more in Aspen Insight.
It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's M. Sanjan. Uh, so please ask a question if you'd like. And I'll, uh, wow, lots of people. Let's just start at the back because the mic is there and we'll sort of slowly wake up. Yes, ma'am. Hi, Ariana Sutton-Greer from University of Maryland. My question is, can you make the link for me on how the human atrocities are also leading to environmental degradation and, and what that key is? I'll try to do it concisely and give you two, it's a really good question, um, give you two examples. One is with the environmental feeding into the human rights and the other is the other way around. So environmental feeding, feeding into human rights, um, uh, the fast short version is you have this situation globally where you have overfishing and illegal fishing, but I'm really fixated on overfishing, licensed, industrial, allowed fishing that is combing the nearshore stocks clean. And therefore, the industrial players and the local artisanal players are having to go so much further out from shore to catch um, a bare minimum to break even. Um, it's already a low margin line of work and gets much lower the further out you go because fuel is the most important variable cost-wise. Uh, and so you start having this dark incentivization, is that a word, um, uh, to, you, to find savings in other, met, in other ways. And that is where you start having captains say, I'm going to use migrant workers and not pay them because otherwise I can't make this work. And none of the locals want to stay on a ship that's headed from Songkla, Thailand to, to Somalia. They just don't. So that's, so that's environmental feeding to human rights. Other direction, um, so um, shark finning. So the, the, the problem and practice of catching sharks, uh, throwing their bodies back, but cutting their fins off, mostly for shark fin soup, um, big problem, obliterating the shark pop population. Um, so there's an interesting economic sub-story there in which you have, and I've seen them, this actually written into formalized contracts, labor contracts, where you have, say, a Taiwanese tuna longliner. Let's say it's leaving from Cape Town and it's going to, you know, Montevideo. It's recruiting, it's using a manning agent in Singapore, a company that recruits the guys. It's 30 crew of Filipino villagers, small guys, maybe most of them haven't even been to sea before. Their contract through their manning agent has ridiculously low wages. Um, but it also has a clause written in it that says, um, you can supplement your wages with side work. Okay, Side work is shark finning. And what that means is you get on the vessel and when that tuna longliner pulls in sharks, you cut off the fin, you throw the shark over, and you put the fin in a bag. Then when you get back to shore, those 30 Filipino workers get to sell those shark fins on the black market and subsidize their slave wages. Okay, this is an economic driver of the obliteration of a species, right? And it's partially funneled by the sort of collateral damage of slave wages. Uh, so that's the other direction. So social um, despair really subsidizes these fishing boats to fish to the bottom and so creates the ecological collapse that you see. You may not be able to do it unless you were using really bad labor practices. Right. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, a, excuse me. As a fellow journalist, if I can get a little meta, 
Can you uh, describe your approach or technique? Did you approach captains? Did you approach shipping companies? How did you get on these vessels and uh, talk a little bit about and technique? Can you introduce yourself to so the answer to the question um, varies per story, right? So how did we go about finding this stowaway who had this incredible experience and was put on a raft in the middle of the ocean and washed up in Liberia? It was a very different story that couldn't have happened 30 years ago, but for the nature of Facebook and online realities and being able to find someone who's homeless but has a phone um, and has a Facebook page. Um, but I think the real answer to your question is the slave, sea slavery story and sort of how do you get there. So that has a very specific answer. Um, the goal was to get on a specific subset of ships. These were the transshipment ships. Those are the ships that go really far away and often stay, the fishing vessels stay out at sea for long periods of time, sometimes over a year. And they unload their catch onto a mothership and they are resupplied with ice, fuel, drugs, everything by motherships, okay? But they keep, they stay out there and that's the cost thing I was talking about before. That's how they can make ends meet by staying out there and not coming all the way back in. But the mothership goes out and comes back. We want to get on those ships because what we had heard, we being the photographer and I, was that if you really want to tell the sea slavery story, you got to get on that group of ships because that's where it's the worst. Um, but how do you get on them? They're two, 250, 250 miles out from shore, sometimes further. Um, uh, this was a time we wanted to go to the South China Sea because there was a lot of um, attention on Thailand and those waters, although the problem is not distinct there. Um, New Zealand, Falkland Islands, you can find the same stuff. Uh, so we went to uh, Songkla, Thailand, um, because it was a port where we knew lots of these vessels were leaving from. We sort of quietly set up camp um, in the town and... Um, we tried to keep a somewhat low profile because we stuck out like sore thumbs and there was a lot of awareness that the U.S. State Department and its TIP report, Trafficking in Persons Report, was all over them about to downgrade Thailand for its trafficking problems and Human Rights Watch and a bunch of different players. The Guardian and others had been doing great work on uh, highlighting these concerns. So we knew that we were going to be watched. But our goal was to go to Songkla and ideally get on a vessel to take us all the way out. That very quickly became apparent. You go out for drinks and dinner and, and bro it up with these captains um, and sort of, uh, on the one hand, you're trying to just show them um, that you're, to some you're, you're a trustworthy, pretty transparent guy. You can't, at the times, um, and most tier one venues, you can't lie about who you are, you can't mislead. and So you gotta be pretty straight about what you're up to. But, you know, in describing what I wanted to do, I didn't say, hey, Captain, I want to talk about sea slavery. I said, hey, I want to talk about um, the people who work out there and what life and work is like on these ships. But I got to get out to these certain ships. Would you take me? No, 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 no. You know, so a week and a half in of running into that, um, we realized we got to try a different tactic. So we began seeing if we could get captains to take us 50 out and hopscotch our way all the way out. So we would we, at the times in most places, you can pay for, for transport, you can't pay for information. So if I convinced Senjin as the captain to take me out, and I paid him for that to cover fuel and whatnot, then I can't quote him or tell his story. It's fine. Um, but we would convince the captain to take us 50 out, and then also as part of the deal, talk our way onto the next vessel. 
calls up another captain says, we've got these oddball guys who want to get on your ship and they want to take pictures. You're willing to play ball. Um, they won't report about you and you can set down ground rules on them. Um, but they also just want you to take 50 more out. And so that's kind of what we did zigzagging out to 250 or so. Took a long time, a couple of you know days spent, weeks spent getting halfway out and then coming back. And um, our translator got super young with it. Like, this is, look at these guys. This is the right ship. This is the right demographics. I can tell those guys are Cambodian. Those guys are Thai. This is the right kind of ship. They're using the right type of gear. If we can get on the ship and we can stay, this is the story. So uh, we got our captain to talk our way on there. That guy took a risk on us. He laid down ground rules. Don't photograph me. I tell you, get out of the way, get out of the way. Um, I don't like something you're doing. I tell you to stop. Uh, other than that, you're good. And so on we went, and that's the story we told. How long were you on that boat? That was three days. Where did you sleep? <laughs> that's, um, yeah, an unpleasant uh, uh, recollection. Um, so that's, there's a part in the book where we talk about rats running across us. That's, yeah. that's where we learned that hard lesson. Um, I had, so on most of these ships, there's a section in the back. There were 40 Cambodian crew, some as young as 13, most of them in their late teens, early 20s. And there rarely was downtime, but at this one point, we were 40, 35 hours in of no sleep, and the translator was still really sick, and the photographer was like blurry-eyed, and we thought we got to lay down for a little while. So we were trying to figure out where we would do that. We went to the back of the ship, and there's this sort of cavern, and it's like that scene in a sci-fi movie where you the character discovers the nest, you know, and there's all these cocoons, you know, and you're like, oh, this is, and that's what it looked like. It was a sort of three-quarter ceiling, maybe three feet, four feet tall. There are pictures of it. And all the boys and men were in nets converted into hammocks, and they were all hanging from the cocoon, like hanging from the ceiling in rows, all the way back in, smelled horrible, cramped about this much space between them and the floor. And I thought, okay, well, this is where they're sleeping. This is where we should sleep. Um, and so I remember thinking and saying something to Adam, the photographer, what's the point in sleeping in a hammock when you're only like this far off the ground? <laughs> I, I yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, now I know. I'll never ask that question again. But so we tucked in under there, slept for 20 minutes, and then we were woken up by the answer to the question, which is rats don't bother people in hammocks, but they do run the floor when they have the ability. So, wow. Um, question up front here. Hi, thank you. Um, going back to how you opened the program and talking about labeling. So I had understood that a lot of fish is not what we think it is, that whether it's on retail or going into restaurants, that fish is often misrepresented and sold as something that it's not, and that there's a real problem with just even tracking to see what the fish is. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, counterfeit is a big problem. I bet you you have much Well, more yes. Uh, so the, it's a big problem. That said, some of the better labeling schemes that you have, like MSC certification, you'll see that, they do really certify that stock. And typically, it's a pretty good certification system that operates. So I don't want any of you leaving here thinking, I shouldn't worry about certification. I shouldn't ask for MSC certified seafood in the, in, the, in the better restaurant you eat at. One big point to make is that if you think you're buying a certain kind of fish, it's not always the same. Um, and, the, and the second point is that even those best certifications currently do not include the human cost. So that just needs to be added on. 
And just to bolster what you're saying, I, I do think that certification in many ways is the way um, of the future. And there is um, real interesting, promising things happening in the certification sphere. So Monterey Bay Aquarium, for example, has in the last year and a half begun creating a report card that takes into account the human condition. So it's happening. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hi. Um... Augusta Salzona, Filipino by birth, American by choice. My uh, uh, qu uh, question is this, in terms of your uh, direct experiences and those of your uh, trusted associates over the years in, uh, in pursuit of your agenda cause, um, have you found an increase in the amount of uh, danger from non-state uh, actors versus non-state actors, you know, the traditional pirates versus the government-sponsored terrorists, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and uh, the follow-up to that is uh, what involvement, if any, do you think the United States military could have in helping your cause or assisting or at least not... Uh, getting in the way? So on the non-state, the state versus non-state actors, um, uh, I think that non-state actors have always been um, more prevalent in this space. Um, if you look through history, there's a robust tradition of, you know, buccaneers and mercenaries and you know, illegal whalers and dumpers and, you know, all these players that I chronicle and attempt to bring into the present have been there for a long time, to some degree more robust than state actors. Uh, so I don't personally think that that has shifted too much. Um, your second question, I think there's a lot that governments in general, not just the U.S. government, can do um, uh, ranging from, there are already these ride-alongs that occur where the U.S. Coast Guard, for example, puts its officers on foreign vessels, um, allied country countries typically, and um, train uh, those countries in boarding procedure and inspection procedure and the like. Often those are those have been motivated historically by drug concerns, anti-drug enforcement, and anti-terrorism enforcement. Um, in the, my dream world, um, uh, there would be a desire to um, broaden that inspection agenda out to include other types of illegality. You know, why should carrying cocaine be worse than carrying a slave, right, as a crime and as something we're concerned about? So. Um, not an easy thing to get into policy, but um, I think that those ride-alongs could um, be broadened out. Um, but it's also like important to think of the U.S. government and even just the U.S. military in other ways. So Uncle Sam, U.S. government, um, is a major buyer of stuff, huge buyer. In some markets, bigger than Walmart, right? And so as a buyer of things, it can sway the market. So if the U.S., if the DOD, Department of Defense decided tomorrow that at all the military bases and their commissars, it's only going to buy tuna that is certified in X, Y way. That would send a ripple through the market as a buyer. Um, and too infrequently do 
advocates think of the government in these other capacities and other leverage methods that they could use to affect policy. They just think of Senator so-and-so needs to write a law that says such and such. Well, there are other ways to do it. Hi there, Juliet Eilpern with the Washington Post. Um, and thanks for, of course, all the great work that you do. You mentioned, again, at the outset, which, of course, all journalists know, that, that we go and we report these stories, and it's really the people we talk to who face the greatest risks. Do you stay in touch through WhatsApp or Facebook with some of these folks? And do you have a sense of whether some of them had their lives improved or gotten worse since you spent time with them? Thanks. It's great to meet you, air quotes, and your book on sharks is amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I keep in touch with too many of them. <laughs> uh, they keep in touch with me um, too much. Uh, uh, and that's a challenge that I think all journalists face of how to handle those relationships. Um, uh, I think that there are some isolated uh, individuals that... Um, I kept tabs on more than others. So uh, in the original series, there was Lang Long, who was this uh, uh, Cambodian man who uh, had been shackled by the neck and experienced the kind of textbook um, slavery uh, uh, experience, but in a more dramatic, acute, newspaper-worthy form. And um, he was a pretty broken individual and is not the type, nor did he speak English, but, but through someone in the Thai government who took a real interest, um, I kept real close taps on him. At one point, soon after the piece came out in the Times, he disappeared, and I got approached by someone in a crowd like this from the State Department who said, hey, have you, have you heard from Lang Long in a while? Because I'm hearing that he's, he's been picked up, and we're not sure where he is. And um, that began a whole scramble that I think I described in the book. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I do, and Lang Long um, is someone who I think I can uh, humbly say had his life improved um, by the reporting. Um, I think the thing that keeps me up at night are all the people that I don't keep in touch with and the people um, whose stories I use, and I find myself wondering, you know, did I maybe make things worse for them? I'll never know. Uh, that scares me a little bit. Um, but... Um, yeah, I do try to, it's a challenge. This is more answer than you want, but um, uh, I'm in a situ situation um, with this fleet called the Somali 7 where I'm struggling to put it down because I keep getting new tips every month that the same 40 Cambodian guys are now stuck in Iran, and, and I, I feel myself like I have to keep on that, but it, it becomes an infinite regress. Um, uh, so... Um, Ian, on behalf of the Aspen Institute, this great audience, at Conservation International, and, and just to sort of, our, our focus on the oceans is really three areas. One is massively increasing the amount of marine protected areas in the world. We have a goal of about 18 million new square kilometers of marine protected areas that we want to create and or manage in a better way. 20 key fisheries and aquaculture systems we've identified. Uh, the Western uh, Pacific tuna being one of them. This is the last buffalo of the sea. I mean, they run in numbers that are unbelievable in the billion. And um, we should be able to manage that sustainably. If we can't do that, we couldn't do anything. And the third is blue carbon, which is, you know, um, carbon that mangroves and coastal systems hold, which really could be the silver bullet for the planet. So on behalf of the work we do, this audience is a phenomenal book. Please, please get it. Please read it. Tell everyone about it. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you very much.
Ian Urbina is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who has reported from Africa, Asia, Europe, South America, and the Middle East. His recent book is The Outlaw Ocean. M. Sanjan is a global conservation scientist. He's the CEO of Conservation International. Their conversation was held in Washington, D.C. by the Aspen High Seas Initiative and Conservation International. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen High Seas Initiative team includes Michael Conathan and Ingrid Irigoyen. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.